Do you really know what the word wealth means? Like I'm talking the origins of the word. Well, welcome to the Most Hated F Word podcast number nine, What is Wealth? With my guest, Mark Anelski. Like it or not, you, me, and everyone else, we all have a relationship with money. And for the most part, it's a complicated one. My name's Sean Maslick. Welcome to the Most Hated F Word podcast. As a certified financial planner, I want to take you on a journey as we throw out the technical finance books and shift our focus towards our minds, our money, and what matters most. If you're looking to improve your relationship with money and build true wealth, you're in the right spot. Finances does not need to be the most hated F word. Please note, this episode was recorded in April of 2020. I'm very excited for you to hear my episode with Mark. Mark is a mentor to me. I met Mark quite a few years ago, and still to this day, every time I leave a conversation with Mark, I'm filled with joy. Mark is an economist who studies well-being. Mark's whole idea is how do we look at the study of well-being over just simply looking at GDP to evaluate a country's um, production that year. And it makes so much sense. Mark shares with us how he's designed his life around living financial wellness, how to incorporate a life that is full of balance. Mark has been doing this for years. Mark shares with us what is the origins of the word wealth and how have we mixed up the actual meaning. He also talks about how spending your money is voting with your values and gets us to question ourselves, how are we spending our money? How are we voting with our values when we spend our money? Mark has been someone who has been able to cover his um, monthly basic expenses for a number of years now. He calls that your burn rate. Knowing your burn rate, your monthly expenses is important is an important step on the way to a path of financial well-being because you then know what is the minimum amount of money you need in order to run your household. Mark also shares his ideas and values on how to teach kids about financial well-being. And lastly, we talk about a strong topic for Mark is debt. Here's a quote from Mark. Debt is the real epidemic as it attacks us just like cancer cells, taking more and more of our oxygen or life energy time to service the ever-growing mountain of debt. It's time to release the toxicity of the economic growth addiction in what I call the cancer of debt. I hope you enjoy this as much as I did. I'm uh, very pleased to have our guest, Mark Analiski. I'm going to do a short bio, and if I miss anything, Mark, feel free to fill in the gaps. When I was looking at Mark's bio, it is quite extensive, so I pulled out the highlights, and uh, I want to introduce Mark. So Mark is the President and Chief Wellbeing Officer of Mark Anelski Management, an economic consultancy specializing in economics of happiness and well-being. Mark is also the Chief Wellbeing Economist with the Indigenomics Institute, The interesting thing I find about Mark is he's been advising communities and countries since 2000 on integrating well-being analytics into conventional economic cost-benefit analysis and impact investing decisions. Mark's well-being measurement work extends to First Nations in Canada, Alberta, Singapore, China, South Korea, the Netherlands, Austria, the French Polynesian, New Zealand, Iceland, and Scotland. 
His framework focuses on building a better and happier world. So as you can see, Mark has a wide extensive experience talking with so many different perspectives, different countries, different types of people, different systems within the financial realm. Not only does Mark have all that experience, he's also an author of two books. The first one is The Economy of Well-Being, Common Sense Tools for Building Genuine Wealth and Happiness, and the award-winning book, The Economics of Happiness. And finally, I really like this one part on Mark's bio that I found on the internet, is Mark believes that most people aspire to live a life that brings them joy, a life full of well-being. I've had the pleasure of having a lot of conversations with Mark in the past. He spoke at a couple of my meetups, and I'm Super excited to have a, a good conversation with Mark. How are you doing? Thanks, John. Very well. And you? Uh, I'm doing well. I'm excited to get this podcast going and super excited to have you on, especially given the current pandemic. I want to start off with a question about your perspective on something that's on everyone's mind. So the S&P 500 is down today 22%. We put a lot of value in how much money we have a lot of times. This comes to the idea of wealth. I know we've talked a lot in the past about what wealth means to you, but I want to hear it from you and I want to share with our listeners what your vision of wealth is. Well, I came to, you know, I, I started to, as an economist, started to look at the origins of these words that we use commonly, wealth. Actually, the word wealth comes from the 13th century. It's an old English word that literally means the conditions of well-being. So those two letters, TH, as the word health means the conditions of something. Huh. And the four letters wheel, W-E-A-L, is well-being. Isn't that amazing? So that changes to me when I, when I realize that, because I love an etymological dictionary, because I want to know the origin of the words. The economy means household management or stewardship. That's what oikosnomia means. Why is stewardship of the household? We all run households. What if wealth is more broadly defined now beyond financial wealth, because financial wealth is a form of wealth. Mm -hmm. But what are the other conditions of well-being that we are trying to pursue or, or trying to manage or trying to create money against or trying to run the economy against? This changes everything. It changes the whole notion of the accounting systems we've developed that are 500 years old, if not older, that date back to 15th century Venice. So accounting, economics, they're all about asset management. Accountants and economists don't necessarily see the same way because there's a joke, you know, the economist drives a vehicle looking through the front you know, window mm -hmm. and accountants look through the rear view mirror. Mm -hmm. So they don't necessarily see eye to eye and they don't understand necessarily the, the respective language. But I was trained in accounting and economics and forestry. So I have this weird, you know, combination of three different disciplines. One studying nature as a model for the economy. One looking at 500 years of asset, liability, equity, accounting, balance sheets, right? Income statements. And then oikosnomia, studying household well-being. So that's how I would define or some would say redefine wealth. But we're not redefining wealth. We're just discovering its original meaning. And so mm -hmm. now that presents a question in our e current economic crisis, will we actually pause for a moment to consider what are we actually pursuing? You know, are we leading our life or just following it around? A good old friend of mine said once, are we waking up every morning going, every day is Christmas? Because mm -hmm. every day is full of what? Abundance of possibilities. Yes, we have a crisis, but we have a crisis. We have an economic viral condition. Mm -hmm. It's not just coronavirus now. And the amazing thing is we are 
pausing. If we pause for 60 more days, literally the human mind will begin to be rewired. We will start to think differently about how we pursue our own personal well-being, the larger macro picture. So this is very exciting, yes, dangerous times. Mm-hmm. It's scary. Mm-hmm. But man, do we have an opportunity to rethink a lot of things that we've been accustomed to. Yeah, personally, I've been out of our office for two weeks now. And my wife is also a full-time worker. She's actually um, teaching at McEwen University and they've been tasked with doing everything online. So I've been full-time dad for the last two weeks. And you talk about this pause. And as somebody who's well-entrenched, well-read in the personal finance, understanding what I want out of my life, I've actually started to rewire even more during this last two weeks, just having more time with my kids. And it's been great. And I know it's only two weeks and uh, maybe there's a different story in four months. But for example, my, me and my four-year-old, two, two days ago, we made a Bruce Springsteen music video, uh, <laughs> Born to Run. And it, it was fantastic. But, but yeah, it's, it's been causing me to pause and to think and just question the system. And I love your breaking down the word wealth to being down to well-being. And I, I guess so wealth in your eyes is not having the biggest house in the block, not having the biggest car, not having the fanciest clothes or, or having and the I'm biggest... Not saying we, I don't say we shouldn't aspire to goodness, to beauty. We're ascetic creatures. We, we like beauty. Mm-hmm. We like nice homes. I mean, there's nothing wrong with those things. But are we aligning our life energy, our time with acquiring those things? And I would say, you know, at some point in your life, I'm old enough to say at some point, life is maintenance, right? At your mm-hmm. age, you have a four-year-old, you're watching your, you know, believe me, in 20 years, you'd be like, what? They're, they're doing their MBA now. Like, what happened? We were doing Bruce Springsteen and now, mm-hmm. you know, so you got to look back and go, pay attention to the now. What, what do these things bring us? If they don't bring us joy, to me, that's my only measure. If it's not bringing me joy and a feeling of like purpose, then why do it? Mm-hmm. Let's test every every moment, moment by moment now and say, what's bringing us joy? What's bringing us hope? There's a lot of despair. There's a lot of fear out there right now. Mm-hmm. And that uncertainty, I think we certainly see. So by trade, I'm a financial planner and not all planners are trained the same way, but very a technical approach is find out how much money someone needs work everything around this pot of money that you need. There's no conversations in our textbooks about what brings you joy. What do you want to trade your time for in order to get money? Right, right. I'm curious at what point, Vicki Robbins' book, Your Money or Your Life, she talks about trading your time for money and just being very intentional with that because when we go to work, that's what we do. We trade our time for money. It seems like you're very conscious on that. And when looking back at your life, you said you're old enough to look back now what helped you get to a point where you can really contextualize the idea that I got to trade my time for money and I'm going to pause? I think there were, there were several points, you know, in my thirties. I mean, I got married late. I was 33. I was like, I thought I never, I thought I was going to be a monk or something. I probably <laughs> should have. In retro, no, just kidding. But, um, I, you know, I would say that my own, my first sort of calling, I would call it into the temple of money uh, systems was actually in 1992 when I went to Jerusalem on my vision quest. So it was there that my story kind of begins and I'm writing a third book called Money Grows on Trees or trying to write it because it's just a story, right, about money. Mm. And I said, so here we have like this dude called Jesus and he's like, he's teaching us the gospel of love and he teaches us three times about money and the third time Judas gets them right and he hands them over and he gets, he's done with, right? So 
So he's teaching us something about, he says, give unto Caesar what's Caesar's, right? It's like, what do you mean? You pay the tax because Caesar is the emperor, right? And so you do your duty to the, whatever, the common good and you pay your tax. But, oh, you're worried about money? Why don't you put the first line in the, in the Sea of Galilee, your fishing line, and lo and behold, the fish will have a, you know, a shekel in its mouth, enough for your, your daily needs. Why? You don't trust me? Trust me, right? Like, believe me, if there's a God of love, everything is always given in sufficient abundance. So for me personally, at a, on a deep level as a, you know, I was raised Catholic. And so I, I mean, indoctrinated in that faith. But then it was in Jerusalem that I, that I started to wake up to this, my own relationship with money. I hated debt. My first bicycle with, you know, bottle money that I saved took me six months to buy my first Peugeot bicycle, which was 90, remember it was $92. I bought it from United Cycle, I think, which is still around. Yeah. Our daughter works for them now, or United Sports, right? And I was proud, right? I saved. I didn't buy, I didn't have a credit card. I was 17, you know, mm-hmm. back in 1977. You know, so now you know how old I am. <laughs> and uh, so I was very in, intrigued by the whole money system. Like, what is money? Who creates it? Why don't we actually study money the way we should? You know, then I started to learn more and more about, whoa, wait a minute, the, the banks are creating 98% of the money when they issue loans. And then I picked up that book, Your Money, Your Life. You just mentioned Vicky Robbins, Joe Domingos. Joe Domingos was making a million dollars on Wall Street back in the 80s. And he he met Vicky from Seattle, like a hippie, right? And they decided they're going to write this cool book about what we're actually doing is changing every hour of our time for money. Like when we work, we, mm-hmm. and and they said as a very simple exercise, why don't you every day monitor your spending, write it down and, and see where the money's going. So you're going to Starbucks twice a day. Well, that's like, that's 10 bucks at least, right? Mm-hmm. Not with a tip for your special coffee, latte or whatever. It was driving my wife crazy because I had it in the fridge. I hear, you know. Yeah. But what's happening now? We're we're not spending that much money. Oh, we went to a Mercy grocery shop for my parents yesterday. But think about it. What are we buying right now? Not very much. Like groceries. The car doesn't get driven at all. We walk the dog. The dog's happy. I know I'm going on for a long story here. But so that that book changed the way I was thinking about. And and I love her, their, their little uh, story about. If you think about it, you might be better off working at McDonald's than working for Ernst & Young Mm -hmm. or whatever. Why? Because you get a uniform, you get a happy meal every day, you can maybe walk to work and maybe McDonald's isn't great because you you don't get tips there. But, Mm -hmm. you know, the point is when you calculate your take home, your net wage after your expenses, so you have to buy a suit, work at the big firm. A car, you need a parking stall, you need a computer, you need blah, blah, blah. You need to go fancy lunches because that's expected, blah, blah, blah. So mm-hmm. your burn rate is pretty high, right? So you got to calculate the net. That's an interesting exercise. When she was talking about that part, it made me think about something that you can't calculate in terms of money, but like what's the emotional toll that comes along with maybe some people, not to pick on a lawyer, but maybe they really love doing that. But say you don't really love working all those hours and you don't love the work, but you're doing it for the money. Not only do we have a burn rate on the nice car, the suits, everything else, but what's the emotional toll of that? What's what's the loss of that one to five years old of your kid because you're working late? Right, right. So, so this extended because I'm a small business guy. You know, I left government in 1999. I worked in the finance ministry, treasury, and that's so I'm a macroeconomist. But at a micro level, a personal level, so I'd read your money, your life. I was, you know, 
we became, we were mortgage free by the time I was, I think, 42. So I'd already, you know, and thanks to like my parents and my mother-in-law who helped us, right? It's like they became our bank. And guess what? We had no more $1,000 a month mortgage payments Mm -hmm. on our home, which now when we bought our house, it was exactly the ratio to household price to income was 2.5 to one. Mm. Okay. Today in Edmonton for a young working couple, it's 2.7 to one. It's not much higher than it was. Now our house was high in price. It was $175,000 back in 1993. So my point is, so suddenly I didn't have a thousand dollar mortgage payment and that, sorry, the, the mortgage, the interest rate on that was 8%, by the way. And there weren't 20 year mortgages. It was an eight, it was a five-year flexible, mm-hmm. whatever, mortgage with ATB. So then we put 20% down mm-hmm. as well. Mm-hmm. So I think, so what's wrong with couples today? Couples today are clearly making a choice to take a long-term mortgage when they probably don't have to, but the interest rates are so good. Mm-hmm. Why wouldn't you? The banker says, take a 20-year mortgage and live, live high up, you know, live luxuriously now, but by the way, if you do the math, you're going to spend two and a half times yeah. the actual value of your house by the time you paid your mortgage. Mm-hmm. So those are all the things that I went through, the mathematics in my head. And here's the most important thing for me that came when I sat down, I was going flying somewhere and I built a spreadsheet and I said, so the thousand dollars a month now is actually discretionary spending power. It's time. Mm-hmm. So what's, what is it worth? It's worth less billable hours. I have to spend right. earning just enough to meet now, just the basic needs, no more mortgage, no, no debt at all, car paid for cash, no credit card balance ever, ever, ever. So no debt. So am I an outlier now? Absolutely. We live in technically in a low income situation. Mm-hmm. Why is that great? I pay less taxes. We have enough income. It's a flow through the company. And I realized I only actually have to work about 40 billable days a year. Yeah. And now it's even less because I have a I have a small government pension now, whatever. But mm-hmm. the point is that here, here's a key point I'd like to leave listeners with. A happy wage, a living wage right now per person is about $40 an hour. Gross. Can you live as a couple on $80 combined an hourly wage? The science says, yes, we can. That a living wage, a happy wage, a living wage is about $75,000 per household. Mm-hmm. How many people can live? The average income before this crisis in Edmonton was about $105,000 for a couple. Mm-hmm. And there's a lot of people not making $75,000 a year. So these are the kind of structural economic things I'm thinking about and saying, now we're in this economic crisis where we're spending, burn rate is lower and we're feeling like, wait, I spend time with my kids. I walk the dog. Yeah. You know, I have, I'm actually more productive because I'm not running around having coffee with Sean anymore while <laughs> now we're talking for, but you know, I, I would spend, I would love doing that because I, I love connecting with people. But right. now actually I'm sitting down and getting work done. Right, yeah. So anyways, these are all the kind of insights that are coming for me right now. That's great. And and two things are coming to my mind as you're talking and it's really applicable to where the podcast is going. And the first one you mentioned about money relationship you mentioned and you talked a bit about your parents helping. A lot of people find they struggle with the, what they want to do and what they actually do. And mm-hmm. I think a lot of times we don't take the time to go back and look at what are our money relationships that we developed as a kid because there's so much research that shows how our parents dealt with money, how they talked, didn't talk about money as children influence how we are now. 
And we don't talk about money, right? We never talk about how much we no, make. No, no. Why would you do that? Why would you do that? Because you make someone feel bad. I, I don't know why the reasons are, but we were all socialized that way. Mm-hmm. And I've just told you 40 bucks an hour, 40 bucks an hour. If you're not paying your employees 40 bucks an hour, yeah, or even ask them, what is your monthly burn rate? What is your basic need spend rate right mm-hmm. now? Right now. Yeah. Because post-crisis, we'll probably normalize, we'll, we'll modulate back up to something different again. But that's where you, you mentioned about it's a good time to pause. And I think for a lot of people right now is to take a, some time and question every single expense and cut them if they're not aligning with what truly makes you happy or where you actually want to go. Mm-hmm. And then the key would be is to not modulate, as you say, back to where we were. Despite it's very difficult, like say money starts coming back in to keep your spending down. But I'm curious on your money relationship. There, there's a financial psychologist out of the States called Dr. Brad Klontz. And he's categorized the vast majority of people into four different what he calls money scripts that we've learned throughout our childhood. And they keep adapting and continuing on as we grow older. But without doing his assessment, I'm just going to read them to you. And let's see which one you think you fall into. So the first one is you avoid money conversations at all costs, also known as the ostrich effect. You shove your head in the sand, ignore it. Number two is you feel like money equals status. And number three is money is your self-worth. And the fourth one is money vigilance, he calls it. So these are individuals that have a difficulty parting ways with their money for various reasons. I mean, that might on the surface sound the best one, but there's also negative tendencies that come along with it. But the first three, they actually correlate high with people who have more stress around money in their lives and higher debt levels in their lives. So, I mean, if you're one of the top three, that's fine. Even though I'm saying higher debt levels and you you just talked about no debt, so I doubt it's one of those. But what do you think when you hear those? Well, actually, if if I'm taking a Jungian archetype perspective, none of the above. None of the K. I I don't say that arrogantly. But if I were to be honest, like in a kind of Jungian self-reflection, I would say either that money is status, but in a positive way. Okay. Having enough, see, having enough money and living the life we're choosing to live now with just enough is itself a kind of arrogant kind of statement of status. My wife says, don't brag about how little we need to live on. Mm-hmm. It's not fair and it's not sensitive. But my accountant helped me do that. So I tell people, I'm making the same amount of money. Actually, I'm making probably less than I did in 1999. Mm-hmm. Now, is that wise? Is that good? Is that kind of feign poverty? You know, you could say, well, that's just my sense of money status or this way of living is itself a kind of proud, you know, position I have. But I don't talk about it a lot because, you know, I'm sensitized to most people don't can't live this way now. You do have a mortgage. You have student debt. This goes back to your official or first thing about what wealth was, e- equating it to well-being. Right. Really and truly, money doesn't, well, we know it doesn't or it is not the evaluation tool to see if someone's successful or not. Right. So I think if someone's outcome is they get to focus on what they want, they get to spend time where they want, they get to control their their schedule, maybe it doesn't matter how much money we make. It doesn't. And I just want to make a point of that, that going back to Vicky Robbins, simply that exercise, you may only do it for two months, but it, what's interesting is you pay, you now notice that your daily burn rate on coffee or whatever it is, is actually quite hot. Like you're, oh, yeah. you might be shocked mm-hmm. when you add it up for a year, you're like, that's a thousand dollars of Starbucks coffees. Yeah, yeah. And I could have bought a nice espresso machine and guess what, which is what I did and wrote it off 
you know, from a cash flow perspective in six months because we didn't go to Starbucks anymore, which is even worse coffee than this nice coffee I can make. Anyways, you know, those are the kind of things that you become aware of. And it's like all the technology that is advancing how we pay. So it started with credit cards. Then now it's Apple Pay. It takes away that like behavioral finance perspective, the pain of departing with money. So like if I have cash, mm-hmm. you know, there's more of a, an emotional feeling I get when I give cash away. Credit card, I just, I just swiped it and signed. Now I just tap it. Now I got Apple Pay yeah. that I, I don't even know what's happening. <laughs> but imagine like every time you bought a coffee at Starbucks, it said, do you know this is going to cost you $1,200 by the end of the year? And if you put that in your child's RSP, it could be four years of university. And, and I only say that jokingly to some degree is that we don't analyze the cost, the opportunity cost of things. And our monkey brains are just like, hey, I want this now. I want this coffee now. I want this. I deserve this. But if we're not actually being intentional about what we're doing, we fall into this way of just following the herd, the system that tells us we need all these things. We just keep going, keep going. And who knows if we live the, I guess, the direction we actually want. I think that's the challenge. You know, everyone has their their free will and their choice. So again, I I go back to this ratio of income, right? In Vancouver, it's 13 to one. So it takes 13 years of income now to buy a house, right? In Toronto, it's 11, which you think that's ridiculous. The average for Canada is about 2.5 still. So the challenge to our young couple listeners would be, what's stopping you from being debt-free in 10 years? Mm -hmm. Mortgage-free. I just told you, this was my pathway to happiness. I am 60 years old. You know, I will be soon. And I can tell you my story looking back and saying, if I had to do it all over again, would I have changed anything? Maybe, but I've also learned that this this path has been a good thing. You know, th- this thing about ha- asking maybe our parents to help us. Why can't our parents be our bank? Our parents have money in the stock market. You know, we use this euphemism, it lost value. No, it didn't. What's happened? Some people sold their shares and there's trillions sitting on the sidelines in cash. That's mm-hmm. all that's happened. Nothing evaporated. The money didn't just disappear yet. Yeah. It's going to be put back in the casino, mm-hmm. right? And people are buying Zoom shares or whatever, right? The smart money money's already moved or moving. Oh, yeah. People don't understand the stock market. They just they think it's like this magical place. It's it's not it's not very special. And so here's the idea. It's like, what if, what if you, and this is what I did to my dad. And I, I, I said, dad, if I paid you, if you help underwrite our mortgage, right? So, and you know the game, right? If you overpay, you get penalized. Mm-hmm. You can't overpay on your mortgage. Why is that? Of course, the bank is interested in getting your interest payments. We need our interest. Don't pay me out early. So I said to my dad, if I pay you a three-year GIC rate on the money you give my wife and I, and then we just hammer the principal on that mortgage. And he said, deal. You know, I didn't shake his hand. I mean, not today I would, but (laughs) you know, that's interesting because my dad is like, my dad's going to buy a GIC anyways, Mm -hmm. because he's right. He's, uh, he's risk averse. So he does it with his son. Mm -hmm. And and yet our, where our portfolio is invested in mutual funds and speculative finance and the casino economy. And what we could be helping each other. Yeah. Just a little bit, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. In the realm of uh, money relationships, again, talking with your dad, as you're almost six years old, I know you have kids yourself. For parents, either parents who are your age or younger of younger kids, 
how do you think we can play the most positive role in helping our children understand their money relationships and their money scripts so that they can positively align decisions to what they actually want to accomplish in life? Well, I have this kind of, I'm a big fan of buying local and buying from your neighbor. Mm -hmm. If your neighbor has a cafe on White Avenue, I know a lot of these guys, Anthony, they used to, you know, own DeCapo and, you know, the owner of High Level Diner or Sugar Bowl, you know, I get to know the owners. Mm -hmm. And then I tell, taught our kids, you know, when you go to the local bakery on 99th Street, Bonjour Bakery, what are you doing? When you hand them, whether you tap or you, actually they don't take tap, but you know, if you hand them a $20 bill for $5.50 loaf of bread, which seems really high, what are you doing? You are voting with your values. Not only are you getting great bread, you now know there's a relationship all the way back to Farmer Joe, who's maybe growing indigenous red fife wheat that was the wheat of the prairies, right? That $5.50 is a relationship all the way back to the land. Mm -hmm. Think about that. Mm -hmm. When you bought that shirt, or that dress from Aritzia, like our daughter did the other day. She probably doesn't know who sewed the dress, maybe some girl in Vietnam. But if she knew, if she could follow the money trail, that would be cool. Yeah. So I say to our kids, think about money's relationship. It's energy. You know, aside of how it's created and stuff, it's still an expression of your value, right? Mm -hmm. So you can choose to buy at Starbucks. We can go to Costco. My wife says, no, you know, we need to support Teresa Spinelli and who owns Italian Center mm-hmm. because they're our neighbors. We don't want them to close. Costco right. won't close. Believe me, Costco mm-hmm. will never close. And the guy who started Costco, he's a nice guy, sure, but he's just one guy, you know, mm-hmm. living in Seattle. So it's, it's this notion of rela- a relational economy that's really powerful. Mm-hmm. We can teach our four-year-olds that right now. Mm-hmm. I know you have another call you're hopping on. So we have about five more minutes. I'd love to have another conversation because I think we could talk all about <laughs> debt. I, I just want to read mm-hmm. a quote from one of your articles about debt. First, your question in your article is, and, and I'm sorry if I'm going to open up something that you really want to talk about, but I'm just going to let it simmer until... Debt. <laughs> we'll, we'll have to let this one simmer until next time because you got to get on your call. But what happens when the music stops and the musical chair game of debt money? Is there a pearl of an opportunity in this crisis? And then in the same article, I think it was the same article, but you talked about, you see debt is the real epidemic as it attacks just like cancer cells, taking more and more of our oxygen or life energy time to service the ever-growing mountain of debt. It's time to release the toxicity of the economic growth addiction and what I call the cancer of debt. So I would love our next... I wrote that? Wow. You wrote that. I know. Nice. I wrote that. (laughs) We'll set up another call to specifically talk about debt because I think this is something that every Mm. single Canadian is struggling with. We look at the debt ratio is, I think it's 1.76% of all of our discretionary income, which we mean we owe more than we have as discretionary income. That's right. That's right. So... I was hoping we could talk about that, but that, that's fine. We're going to set up a second call. Before you jump on your next call, I would like to ask kind of quick answer questions because we have about four minutes left that people can use your answers as maybe an insight to how they can look at their relationship with money. The first one is, what is your financial why, so to speak? Basically, like, why do you make money? And if you can limit it to like a sentence or two. At this point in my life, I only make money to maintain what we have in the household keep the house functioning, have enough cash flow to meet our basic needs, food, utilities, taxes, regrettably, 
Sorry, no, sometimes. (laughs) We spend a lot of money on taxes. 25% of our income goes to taxes, right? It's a lot. Not to say it's not a good thing. Mm -hmm. And then from the business perspective, ensuring that there's a flow through, like from the great clients I have who, who pay me, let's say, handsomely, or they pay me, you know, it's like, here's what the aha came to me. I call it God's business plan. You know, I was very stressed. My wife will remind me and say, no, no, when you were 30, you were super stressed. <laughs> you were anxious of having a second child. You say, we can't afford it. Like, it's ridiculous. I look back, right? And then I relax. I said, you know what? Everything is guided by grace. We don't know when the next client is going to pick up the phone and call me. I don't know. Mm-hmm. And this week, I had two, two people call me out of the blue and said, you mean you help build like well-being balance sheets for First Nations? I'm like, yeah, that's my passion. That's my passion right now. I want to help those First Nations achieve financial self-sufficiency and economic sovereignty. And why? Because they're small. They're from Turtle Island. They are understand the wisdom of 8,000 years of economics Mm -hmm. according to their laws and natural laws. And boy, do we have a lot to learn. So it's like every, so every day now when I relax into that notion of abundance, the clients come if I'm anxious, yeah. if I'm stressed. It's like, no, I have to, and it's hard, right? Because you, it's the mind game. Totally. You're, and you're, you're getting battled in the head, right? Like, so that's my, my lesson to any young entrepreneurs is don't worry. Follow your heart, mm-hmm. follow your joy. If you want to be a jazz musician, go for it. But don't be an idiot. I mean, work at Starbucks because right, you know yeah. you, you can make tip money. Right, you can make thirty bucks an hour, maybe. Mm-hmm. But if you want to be a great jazz musician on the side, go for it. There's nothing stopping you from this. This so follow the joy again, right? Yeah, follow the joy. And I like how you maybe we'll finish on that note. There's this notion that always toys in my head is that you've got people on one side who say follow your passions and money doesn't matter, but then you got the people who are like, well, come on, our economy is based on money right now. But to your point, right now, I think it's. What I believe is that we got to know what gives us that joy and then find that balance where we can coexist between our passions and our money, whether that's working at Starbucks like you alluded to, but finding that balance where we coexist with each other. We're not independent or sorry, dependent on each other. And I think that's when we can actually separate our dependency on money and just coexist with it. It is what it is. Then, then we can actually challenge ourselves being like, what is the cost of not being that jazz musician? That's right. And I, I want to make a big thank you to you because you and I both, I think, have this weird passion for money, for numbers, right? And all I'm hearing from some of my friends is, can you help me? Can you give me some tips? I'm struggling, right? I said, I'd love to give you, you, you could take it or leave it, but I love building spreadsheets. I can build your, your happiness spreadsheet for you. Show me your spending data for the last two months. And I, w- I can maybe help you find a way through this, right? And I think that's our responsibility as analysts. We're passionate about this because mm-hmm. we know that this will give us, give so many more people peace of mm-hmm. mind, mm-hmm. right? And, and that's what I want for my neighbors. I don't want my neighbors to be stressed. Stress and fear is going to be more contagious. It's the greater contagion than the coronavirus. Mm-hmm. I swear, yeah. we're going to see economic stress like you won't believe, right? It's already happening. Mm-hmm. And so we have to be, very careful and very, um, we're leaders. We, we need to lead with these ideas. We have to get these ideas out and hope people listen to this podcast because don't despair. Like mm-hmm. just yeah. ask for help. Yeah. Well, I, I always appreciate your more so system thinking around the framework that we live in because that's what really, really matters to me. Sure, tips help, but 
If we don't mm-hmm. get that framework right, then the tips just, we stop doing them in 23 days. Absolutely. It is yeah. 10.50. I know that was your cutoff. Mark, where can people get your book? I think it, your books are a great read. Maybe you can just give a little information on how do people can get a hold of your book and uh, where's the best place to read some of your articles. I read them on LinkedIn, but... So both books are available on Amazon or you can, you know, and in, in either the Economics of Happiness is just an ebook now or you can buy a used one, I'm sure, on, you know, somewhere they recycle. It's a great thing about books, right? It is available to the Edmonton Public Library. Both books, I think the Economy of Wellbeing is also available. And yeah, just, and then my website, The Economy of Wellbeing, I have a podcast called The Economy of Wellbeing. Mm-hmm. Uh, you can listen to some of my wonderful guests talk about this stuff. And yes, I'm posting. I found LinkedIn a useful platform because I can, I can get a thousand people actually. And LinkedIn's a fascinating platform because people either clap or they'll ignore me or they'll enter a conversation. So rather than my own website, which is nielski.com, like, okay, that's my website. But, you know, I don't get as much traffic mm-hmm. as I do in LinkedIn. Okay. And I'm also, I'm also posting on, on Facebook too. So Okay, well, I highly suggest everyone goes and follows Mark. He's got some great articles on LinkedIn and his podcast is great where he gets some really interesting people to uh, speak about the economy of well-being. So thanks so much, Mark. Enjoy your next call and uh, thanks for taking time. Thanks, I appreciate it. Thank you for tuning in to the Most Hated Effort podcast. If you're enjoying the content, please leave me a review on iTunes. I greatly appreciate it. Well, now it's time for me to get the F out of here.